Well, I invite you now to come with me to Romans chapter 7. And tonight, if you're visiting with us, we have been making our way through uh, Romans, uh, and this is our our last uh, evening in Romans before we pick up a Christmas series. Uh, So tonight, we're going to pick up Romans chapter 7, and we're going to begin to read from verse 7. So Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. If you're reading from a pew Bible, one of our red pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1133 this evening. So, Romans chapter 7, and let's read from verse 7. Paul's writing, and he says this, "'What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law.' For I would, have not, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks. 
be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Well, do let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 7, those verses that we read, uh, 7 to the end of the chapter, uh, page 1133, if you've got a, a pew Bible. Don't know if you uh, noticed this week, the New York Times ran a story claiming that uh, somewhere around a year ago, the plans for the Hamas attack on Israel uh, had been intercepted and had been widely distributed amongst the Israeli security forces. The plans were detailed. They included intentions to use drones and to break through the wall, to use paragliders, and, and of course, all of those things happened. And unfortunately, the plans were analyzed and they were dismissed as merely aspirational, and the attention that should have been given to them uh, was not. I think we recognize that it is a huge tactical blunder to have an outline of how one's enemy works or intends to act, and yet not pay sufficient attention to it. And in these chapters of Romans, and especially in this chapter of Romans, Paul outlines how our enemy works and acts, our enemy of sin. He describes our relationship to it. He describes how it affects us and how it derails us. And potentially, we are given a tremendous advantage here as we would be uh, forewarned and forearmed, as it were, as we understand how sin works in our lives. And we, we do well to study these chapters uh, carefully, and I hope this evening we'll find much that's helpful here for us in our, our struggle against sin. As John said, this is our, our last look at Romans for a little while. We'll pick it up, uh, hopefully, uh, before too long again. Uh, after we look at the Christmas story over the next number of weeks. But just to, to remind ourselves a little bit of some of the things that we've seen, Paul has been telling us in this book that though we are really undeserving and helpless, and the early part of the book really underlines that for us, though we are undeserving and helpless, we have an amazing gift from God, justification, declared to be in the right with the living God, the God who is our maker, we, we have also been united with Christ, and our, our relationship to sin has therefore changed. Once we were not able not to sin, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, and now we are able not to sin. If we're Christians, we're able not to sin. We've been removed from the dominion, the kingdom, where it is our master, and we now are in the kingdom where Christ is our master. We're free from the law, too, in the sense that we're set free from its condemnation. And when Paul talks about the, the law, and, and here we're, we're thinking that Paul uses law, I think, in this chapter in a number of different ways, sometimes as a principle, sometimes even maybe as a force, but often, and, and uh, as we're thinking about it here, we're often thinking about really the Old Testament law, and, and the, the, we might think, for example, of the Ten Commandments. As Paul talks about the Ten Commandments and, and, and talks about the fact that our, our relationship with the law has changed, it might be easy for us to think, well, you know, the law seems to have condemned us and so on. Maybe, maybe the law is, is, is a bad thing. And that's sort of where we, we pick up with Paul's thinking here 
in chapter 7, verse 7. He says, what shall we say then that the law is sin? And once again, we get one of these familiar uh, answers from Paul, by no means. He says that would be an entirely wrong conclusion. And then he tells us a little bit about how the law functions in regard to sin. And really, there are sort of two things that he says here, uh, that it reveals sin and that it sort of provokes sin. So, so we're, we're just going to work through this passage with, with a number of little headings, and, and one is that uh, sin is revealed here, and, and, and that's what the law does in uh, these verses. So, you see verse 7, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So, one of the things we sometimes say about, about the law, about the Ten Commandments, for example, is that it, it is like a mirror that we are able to hold up and see ourselves in. And, and uh, Paul is saying here that the law shows us ourselves and shows us that there are things in us that are sin and things that we do that are sin that maybe we wouldn't know otherwise. And it shows us, therefore, that we're sinners, that we, that we need a Savior ultimately. So, you can just imagine, for example, talking to someone, maybe a friend called Sam, and Sam says, you know what, I, I, I was at your church the other week, and, and I heard, uh, heard somebody talk about the fact that we're sinners. You know, I, I don't really think of myself as a thinner, a sinner, sinner and, and uh, I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't really think I am. Do, do you think I am? And you say to him, well, I'll tell you what, Sam, let, let, let's, let's take a moment and, and read through the Ten Commandments. You've heard of the Ten Commandments. Let, let's, let's read through them think about them a little bit. And one by one, you, you, you go through and you, you begin to allow them to sort of shine into Sam's heart, or you, you hold up the mirror before him and, and, and allow him to see himself. And you say, well, now, the first one, Sam, it, it, it tells us that we're to have no other gods. Um, t tell me, is, is, is God first in your life? Is He First in your life, every moment of every day. Do, do you look to him fully at all times? And Sam says, well, you know, I, I guess I don't really. Okay, well, well then think, think about another one. The second one, we're told not to worship idols. Um, is there anything that you look to, Sam, that, that brings you joy and meaning that, that you base your life upon other than God? Is there anything that drifts into that sort of central place in your life? Is there anything that you would sort of say you live for and you would sacrifice anything for. That's an idol. Is there anything like that, Sam? And Sam says, well, you know, I guess my family's like that a bit at times and, and my work sometimes. Yeah, okay, there is, yeah. And you keep on going through and, and, and you get to the second table of the law and you, you say, what about adultery, Sam? Do you ever find yourself committing adultery in your mind? Well, what's your thought life like? And he goes, yeah, well, that's not great, is it? And and then what about murder? Is there anybody you hate and despise or dismiss? Yeah, yeah, there, there certainly are. And, and you see, as you go through the commandments, you see sin is you, you hold up the, the mirror to the, the heart and, and, and you begin to see, goodness, I, I, there, there is sin here that I didn't even know was here. The, the, the commandments, the law has, has revealed sin in, in your life. It's notable that, that Paul here uses the example of coveting. 
in this regard, because it's the, 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 the commandment that deals with the heart straight up, isn't it? We, we sort of did that as we went through those commandments. Jesus showed us, of course, that, that all of the commandments have a, an interior aspect to them, a heart aspect to them, but, but it would be possible perhaps at first reading just to read through the commandments and think, well, this is just about the act of stealing or the act of adultery or whatever, and, and you might think, well, I'm okay there. But then you get to coveting, and it starts to ask about the heart and, and attitudes and so on, and suddenly you think, well, goodness, I'm, I'm not as pure as I thought I was. And it's, it's probably the same sort of thought of the law revealing sin that's behind this sort of rather odd verse in verse 9, where he, he says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. I, it's a bit of a debate about this, but it seems that, that one of the things that Paul could be talking about here is, is what it was like to come of age as a young Jewish boy. There was a, there was a point at which Jewish children were, were thought to be sort of responsible as far as the law was concerned. Not that they weren't sinful before that, but, but there was a particular time in which they, they became responsible under the law. And, and so, Paul, there was Paul as a young person thinking, well, I'm doing okay. I'm, a, I'm an upright young Jewish boy. And then he began to to, to hear the law more and more and began to see it applied and realized that he was responsible under it. And, and, and that which he thought he was alive under suddenly became death to him because he realized that he was condemned by it. So, Paul is saying, you see, that the law reveals sin. That's what it does. But it's not only that. It's that, that the law also provokes sin. I, I remember whenever I was a a student in Aberdeen, the, the theology department, was in the very oldest part of the university. And Aberdeen University goes back to the, uh, the 15th century. And uh, th there was a little quadrangle where the, the, the university chapel was and some of the theology classrooms. And it was quite high walls, and there was a little grass patch in the middle. And uh, the, the light didn't get to it much. The grass was a bit tender. And, and, and the caretakers had put up little signs, you know, don't walk on the grass. And, and, and there were places where you had to get to. And it was much, much shorter to walk on the grass. And, and you would walk along and you would think, well, there's nobody around. And anyway, who do these people think that they are to tell me not to walk on the grass? I've paid my university fees. I, 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 at least a foot can go on the grass here. And, and you see, what that was, was, was doing was, was actually showing me that, that I really don't like anybody to make rules for me. The, 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 the law, the, the, the sign in that case, not only a, a told me that something that I should do, but it, it provoked something within me. And you see, this is what the law of God is like. It's, it's not the law's fault. It, it, it's, it's showing me something about my heart. It's allowing me to see that my heart is not content to be the servant of anyone. You, you know that sense that, that wells up within you at times. What gives him the right to tell me what to do? That, that, that's become much, much more uh, common within our culture to be able to say that. But I think it's always been there. What, what gives them the right to, to tell me what to do? I'm servant of no one. But that's just a throwback to the fact that we have thrown off God as our master. 
It was the very essence of Satan's temptation in the garden, wasn't it? It was, it was really to say to Adam and Eve, you shouldn't play second fiddle to anyone. You should be in charge. And so eat this, and you will be like God's. So that's what sin does. Now, we know that there are other functions of the law, but, but Paul here is saying, look, it, it, it really shows your, your heart. It, sh it shows your sin, and it shows that you have a rebellious heart, and the very fact that it provokes something in you shows that you have a rebellious heart that turns easily from God and resists His rule. And so, in all of these things, it convicts us and, and shows us that we need a Savior. So, 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 whenever we talk about the law condemning us, don't for a moment think it's a bad thing. It's actually exactly what we need to point us to Jesus. Now, when, when we do come to Jesus, th then the law, in a sense, slightly changes its, its, its function with us a little bit. It then shows us uh, what, what Jesus loves, what He is like, and, and what He treasures and prides, and therefore how we should how we should walk. And so the law, from once being a mirror to us, then becomes to us a map to show us how to live. It doesn't cease to be a mirror, but it also becomes a, a map for us. And, and, and then Paul goes on to talk a little bit about, about what it is like to, to live knowing what we want to do, what God wants us to do, and what we want to do as believers, but struggling to do it. And that, that brings us to our, our sort of second point as we, we work through this, struggling with sin. Um, Paul really describes that in pretty much the rest of the chapter, and, and he uses really, really strong language at points. You see, he says, for example, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Uh, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Now, <clears throat> some of the things that Paul says here are so strong that, that people have, have thought he, he, he can't be describing a struggle as a Christian. This must have been Paul before he was a Christian. Some uh, very good and thoughtful people have suggested that, but, but most interpreters have said that this is Paul describing his Christian experience, his Christian life. And there, there are several reasons for that, but let, let me point out two of them to you. First of all, there's a tense change. You notice that in the, in the previous verses, um, Paul is talking in the past tense. So, uh, uh, for, for example, in, in verses uh, uh, 7 to 12, it, it's very much in the past tense. He's describing and saying, this is how things used to be with me. But then in verse 14 and following, he begins to use the present tense implying, I think, that he's saying, this is how things are with me now. And then you look down at verse 22, and I think this is really important. He, he says that he describes himself, and he says that he delights in the law of God. Now, you see, before we're Christians, we really don't delight in the law of God. We might admire the law of God, or at least we might say we do, but, but, but to delight in it? Before we're Christians, we, we, we see it as a threat and a, and a burden, but only a believer can really say that, that he or she delights in the law of God. So, so it's pretty clear that this is describing Paul's current Christian experience. And, and, and what does he describe if that's the case? Well, he describes an inner tension, an inner struggle. He doesn't do what he wants to do, he knows that there's a right path, a, a revealed path, God's path. It's revealed in God's law. 
And he, he wants to go along that path, and yet so often he finds himself going along the other path, or one of many other paths, the sinful path. And you, you notice that, that the part of him that he describes as wanting to do good, sometimes he talks about it as I, and in my inner being, and in my mind. So that's just a reflection of the fact that he's been changed on the inside, that God has, has brought him to life. He has given him a new heart. He's given him a new desire. That's what God does with us. You, you, you'll, you'll, if you've maybe come to Christ later in life, you, you, you'll have seen that. You'll have felt that within your own life. You, how, how many of your desires, the things that you wanted to do before, you didn't want to do anymore, you had a whole new set of aspirations and, 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 and draws on your own heart. God's done that. And, and, and Paul is saying, oh, I've been changed on the inside. I, 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 I now delight in God's law. I, I, I delight in going God's way. I, I want to do what God wants. God, when He brings us to life, gives us a new heart set on Him. But that's not all that's going on inside Him. He has another side to Him. He calls it the, the flesh or, or sometimes translate it the old man or the sinful nature. It's a hangover of what used to be. It remains with him, as, as Timothy Keller says, it, it, there, there remains with him a center of sin. He's been transformed on the one hand so that he delights in God's law, but he has not been delivered from the presence of sin, and so he finds this war going on within him. Uh, often read from the message, but, but listen to the, the message described this. You might find that it resonates with you. The power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions. I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's command, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Part of me covertly rebels. And just when I least expect it, it takes charge. It captures something of the struggle, isn't it? Within, within Paul's heart, it, it described these verses. He, he writes about it elsewhere too, Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, if you're, if you're a Christian here tonight, you, you'll know something of this. You know that your life is a mix of of good intentions and frustrations of things that you want to set your heart on and you know that that it is God's will for you and then shaming failures you know what is right and good and yet you find yourself not walking in those ways and I hope you see that Paul is saying here that's not just because you're a procrastinator or a dreamer. He's actually saying that there's a battle in your heart. There's a fifth column in your heart. And it's frustrating the God-given desire to go His way. 
So there's, there's, a, there's a battle, there's a struggle. Now, two, two or three things that, that, that follow from this, a couple of practical, a few practical sort of uh, conclusions to this. First of all, this, we never go so far in the Christian life, if you're a Christian, you never go so far in the Christian life that you do not find in your heart a battle against sin. There are occasionally people along the way who, who say <clears throat> or who imply that you can attain some sort of level of sinless perfection within the Christian life. I, I've met some of those people. Uh, Spurgeon met one of those people once. I don't know if you know this story. He was, a speaking, uh, he was speaking at a conference along with another man who publicly proclaimed that Christians could attain a, a, a place of sinless perfection where they no longer struggled with sin because they were perfected in the love of God. And the speaker went on to suggest modestly that, well, you know, I've realized this in my own life. Schaefer, or Schaefer, uh, Spurgeon. Spurgeon said nothing at that point, and, and uh, the next morning he was behind him in the queue for breakfast, and he took a full jug of milk and he poured it over his head, and the man absolutely exploded. And Spurgeon walked away and was heard to say, I thought so. <laughs> you know? Now, we, we don't meet many people like that, but, but, but sometimes it's put in another way. So sometimes we, we will see eventually as we get into Romans chapter 8 that Romans chapter 8 speaks about Christian experience with a, a much more sort of victorious tone in a sense. And, and sometimes people have, have said, Do you know, we need to be the sort of Christians who, who get out of Romans chapter 7 and into Romans chapter 8. Sounds great. But the reality is you will never leave Romans chapter 7 on this earth, in this life. We will experience both Romans 7 and chapter 8. And we must know that. So we never go so far in the Christian life that, 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 that we do not find a battle in our hearts. The second thing we can say about this, this struggle, is that I think there's great comfort. We need to be careful in how we put this, but there's great comfort in the normality, let's put it that way, the normality of Paul's experience as he describes it in these verses. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans quite late on in his life and ministry. He's not just starting out. He's not a junior apostle, as it were. He's, he's a mature believer. And we should take encouragement from the fact that here he is as a mature believer and the experience of this conflict, this struggle, is not something he remembers from his youth, but it is something that he experiences day by day. And so there's a sense in which this is normal. Now, I don't say that to, to make us content with it, but I do say that so that we will not be surprised by it. And, and one of the commentators in this says he's not finding himself stumbling into sin when he's at his worst and somehow backslidden. He is facing these challenges as he's yearning for God. Tim Keller says this, Romans 7 encourages us that temptation and conflict with sin, even some relapses into sin, are consistent with being a growing Christian. There's a comfort in that, isn't there? And then this, this other thing that we want to say here is that while Christian growth means progress in the battle against sin, it may also mean 
that we see our sin more clearly. A number of years ago, you'll remember that we had uh, Dick Dowsett here with us in church, and, and uh, I remember one of the stories he told of how I think then his about four-year-old grandson, who had recently professed to begin to follow Jesus, was quite down one day, and Dick asked him what was going on. And he says, Granda, it's just that I've been a Christian for three months now, and I'm still bad. And maybe you find that you're a little bit older and you've been a Christian for a little bit longer than the three months, and you're pretty dismayed at what you find in your heart. I always think of this whenever I watch the conversation in the film Shrek between the ogre and the donkey, you know? And Shrek says to the donkey, onions. Ogres are like onions, we have layers, you know? And maybe you feel a little bit like that in your Christian life. You feel as if you make some progress and you sort of take off a layer and, and, and then you find that there's a layer beneath it and that layer is more caustic and acidic than the one you've removed. It causes even more tears. And, and I think part of how we're to understand what Paul is experiencing here is what we also experience. And that is that the closer we get to Jesus, the more our sin is evident the light is brighter, and so we see our sin more clearly. Again, Keller says this, even when we know and see ourselves making progress against many bad habits and attitudes, we will grow more aware of the rebellious, selfish roots still within us. The holier we are, the more we cry about our unholiness. Struggle. Well, all of this might seem a little bit uh, depressing, but, but it sets the scene for Paul's cry and for his expression of trust in his rescuer. And that's the last thing we want to talk about is rescue. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But Paul seems to sort of come to the end of himself in verse 24, doesn't it? And maybe that's part of how we're to understand these verses, that, that Paul is really saying, I, I realize that I have no ability in this fight by myself. I, I am powerless to make progress in it. I cannot gain a foothold in my own strength. And, and, and this is us, isn't it? We are wretched men and women. I don't know how you feel whenever you sing that song, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you know it? O Lord, verse 3, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious Savior of my ruined life. How do you think whenever we sing that? Do we think, oh, steady on. Not that bad. No, we want to say, oh yeah, Lord. And, and how great it is, Lord, to be able to to stand here with my brothers and sisters and, and to sing this and to, to know that you know and, and that, that I can say it before you. Our forefathers prayed this in the Book of Common Prayer, the general confession. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things that we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. We cry out, I'm wretched. But, but, but that's not all we cry, because then he says, I, I turn to Jesus, you see, 
Who will save me from this body? Wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you see, we, we, we don't leave one cry behind to utter the other. They're both together. And I think that's why Paul almost sums that up at the little verse at the end that we almost wish he wouldn't put in there because it seems to sort of dilute the triumph. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but, in, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Why is he doing that? Because both cries are together. I am wretched, but thanks be to God. I'm a mess, but he is sufficient. Gracious Savior, of my ruined life. Don't you know that his welcome of you, if you're a Christian, his welcome of you does not even depend on your performance in this area of your Christian life? And that's not to make you complacent or to make me complacent, but to make us fight all the harder. We must take up the struggle against sin. That's what Paul is doing here. But you think of it like this, you're in a boxing match against sin, and at the end of the round, you've taken a hammering, and you retire to your corner, and Christ speaks to you in your corner. Now, there's a sense in which He is out there in the, in the ring with us, of course, but let, let's imagine it this way. He, he speaks to you in your corner. What does He say as you've taken such a battering? He does not say to you, if you don't fight harder, I'll not be here at the end of the next round. Do you think I saved you for such poor performance? No, no, no. It's, it's much more like, don't you know that my love for you is sure? Don't you know that I died for you while you were ungodly? And, and so your failures don't surprise me, and my welcome and my committed to you, commitment to you are undaunted. And you know, that's what enables us to fight again, isn't it? struggle, and rescue. So, believer, press on. You might think you're getting worse, and, and maybe some of us are, and we need to repent and turn around. But you might think you're getting worse because you're actually getting closer, and you're beginning to see yourself more clearly. And you know that the gracious Savior of your ruined life Tonight, you know that He loves you still, and He saw these struggles as He died for you. So, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ.